Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Hey, last week, um, Emily and I had the absolute privilege of spending four days with the Martinez family in Chechen, Poland. Ever been to Chechen before? Anybody? No? Uh, it's cold. It's cold in Chechen. Uh, if you guys don't know even where Poland is, uh, it's in Europe. Um, it borders the Baltic Sea and Germany. It's Portions of Poland have changed hands with Germany and, and other portions of Europe. is an interesting country. Um, and that way, uh, continent. It's an interesting continent. Thank you. Um, and that the borders are always shifting, you know, but, um, so we were in Poland, we flew into Berlin, we drove to Chechen, which is just on the border. You can go to the next slide. Um, uh, right there on the border of Poland and Germany. And we were able to spend time with the Martinez family who are missionaries we support there. Uh, we learned about their ministry. We learned about the city of Chechen. Chechen is 99% Catholic. Uh, interesting, right? Um, but it's kind of like Catholic, like Levittown's Catholic, right? It's like everybody is Catholic in Poland. Whether you're Catholic or not, you're just Catholic. And so uh, it doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus or you're an atheist, you're still Catholic. And so uh, what's interesting, though, is like uh, I'm going to talk more about this on the 31st. We're going to do more of a thorough update of what we did there and what we learned and whatnot and, and what our plans are for the future, possibly, as we uh, move forward in our relationship with the Martinez family. But um, the Czech Republic, I learned this interesting statistic, the Czech Republic, which is the, the country that borders Poland to the south, there are more Je- people who there are more people who identify as Jedi's in the Czech Republic than as Jesus followers. Let that let that sink in for you for just a minute, okay? Jedi's like from Star Wars. Yes, more people identify as Jedi's than Jesus followers. That is the state of Christianity in Europe today, friends. So uh, there's a lot of work to do in Chechen, and we're excited to partner with them. Um, but we're going to tell more about their story there again on the 31st. Make sure to join us. As we, as we share that and many other highlights from the previous year. This morning, we're finishing up our series, The Ghosts of Christmas Past. We kind of talked about this a little bit already. The commercialized version of Christmas tells us that this is the most wonderful time of the year. And it is for a lot of people, right? We love the lights, the anticipation, the expectation, all of it. It's really, really a wonderful time of the year. But we often forget that the lights, and they take a lot of work, you know? To decorate your house, that takes a lot of work. To put the lights on the house, it takes a lot of work. The anticipation, it does, for parents at least, comes with a lot of expectation. To put something under the Christmas tree, and then for the Christmas tree, for a lot of parents, it symbolizes the debt and the anxiety and the stress. And so there's a lot of challenges that come with this time of the year as well. For me, one of the things that makes Christmas a sad time of the year is the remembrance of my mom who died a year and a half ago. I won't go into all the details as to why Christmas was one of the few, uh, why Christmas is, is, is saddening, but one, it's, it's one of the few times that I ever saw my siblings. My mom was really the glue that held our family together, and so she always requested, always asked that all of the family come together at Christmas time, and when she passed, I feel like my family has kind of dissolved along with it a little bit. Christmas reminds me of the mom who I've lost, but it also reminds me of a family that feels distant at Christmas time. 
I'm from Minnesota, by the way, so it's not like I can just walk down the road to my sister's house or my brother's house. Maybe you feel the same. Maybe, maybe Christmas conjures up memories of challenges or hard things for you. Under all the, all the buzz of all the excitement is, is the remembrance of how dysfunctional your family actually is. Maybe Christmas is the time of the year when your family fell apart or you lost your spouse or you lost your job or you had a heart attack and you remember how fleeting life can be. Christmas time oftentimes conjures up these memories of painful pasts in a lot of us. A friend of mine posted on Instagram a couple days ago how Christmas is so hard on her because two years ago she lost her infant child. And she loves Jesus, and she loves Jesus' church, and she goes to church, but Christmas is really, really hard because do you know what we sing about at Christmas time? Baby boys. We remember at Christmas time? Infant children. It's the one thing that her heart breaks over the most is the loss of her baby boy. And that's all that we talk about this time of the year. And so Christmas is really, really hard for her. Today, as we finish our series, we're going to look at the ghosts of past losses and the agony that can often accompany them. The psalmist believe that God draws near to us when we're brokenhearted. For some people, that's a consolation. Wow, that's that's really comforting. Thank you, God. I, I, your, your presence is so meaningful, and it truly is, right? When I'm brokenhearted, you come near to me. That is so powerful. But for a lot of people, they scoff at this because they think, God feels most distant in my times of pain. When my heart is full of sorrow and my mind is just confused by the injustices or the pain of the world, God feels the most far away in those moments. So how could it be that God draws near to the brokenhearted? Here's what C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, maybe if you don't know, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote a number of other phenomenal books. He was a theologian and, and philosopher in the 20th century. He wrote this in a, in a book called The Grief Observed. He wrote this after his wife had died of cancer and his heart was just completely broken. He said this, where is God? When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when you when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, well, simply silence. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent help in time of trouble? C.S. Lewis, he's, he's yelling, right? He's grieving. These are visceral emotions coming from his heart. And at the top of his lungs, he's just standing there screaming at God, wondering, why, why, why? And he did this for weeks. He felt the pain and the sorrow that he experienced for weeks. Maybe you can relate. Maybe there have been times that you've been so painful that it drove you to screaming and questioning and you felt the wedge drive deep and you just became apathetic towards God. And you're skeptical at best and you turned your back on God and you walked away. Well, oftentimes those moments of grief become a wedge and they can separate us from God. And you're here this morning hoping that I might just say something that would inspire you to love God again. And you're here this morning just hoping that I, I might say something that would just comfort you and give you just a spark of interest in pursuing God again. I get it. I totally get it. In our, in our moments of pain, when the world just seems out of control, when our heart and our mind can't wrestle with the injustices and the pains and the sorrow that we feel, oftentimes those become a wedge between us and God. And if it's not your story, it's probably the story of someone that you know. 
Two-thirds of the way through his four-part memoir on grief, several weeks after his wife passed, C.S. Lewis finally admits this, that everything before this, all the yelling and the screaming, it was a yell. It, it wasn't rational thought. And sometimes our feelings, they're not rational and they're not thoughtful. They're just honest and they're just raw. And my friends, that's okay. That's okay. It's okay to not be okay. Venting is okay. Did you know that venting is even encouraged in Scripture? The entire book of Job is about how God won't throw lightning bolts at you. He will not throw lightning bolts at you if you tell him how you truly feel about life. If you're honest enough to tell him about how you actually feel about life. Half of the Psalms, 75 of the Psalms, are laments. They're just people yelling at God about how sucky life is. Or how full of sorrow and how painful and unfair life feels. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is the raw outpouring of a man deep in sorrow. Several of the prophetic books are the honest emotions of people who are broken and shattered by loss or death or injustice. And they're just weeping over what they're experiencing. And so, friends, take your pain to God. God can handle your pain. God can handle your emotions, your raw, honest feelings. He wants to help you carry it. Be honest with Him. Shout, cry, and yell. These emotions and communication with God are signs of an actual relationship. I mean, think about this. For those of you who are married, for those of you who have children, you don't ever just talk about the good things in life. And friends, if you only ever talk about the good things in life with your spouse or with your children, that's a fragile relationship. You're putting on a mask. You know why? Because life isn't like that. And you're not opening yourself up to the person who you love dearly and opening them up in honest intimacy. And so God wants our honesty. He doesn't want you to put on a a mask of self-righteousness. He doesn't want you to put on a mask of of personal self-piety, thinking like, okay, God's so holy and just, I can only ever approach him when things are good. He wants your honest heart. He wants your raw emotions. Self-righteous piety that bottles it up and puts on an, an aura of appearance of being okay will only drive the pain deeper within you. You know this, because maybe some of you have done this. So let it breathe. Henry Longfellow, he, he wrote the song, um, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, thank you. He, he wrote the song after his wife had burned alive in a house fire. He lost a kid, uh, his son was almost paralyzed in war. I mean, there's just grief after grief after grief piled upon him, and he wrote the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He, he said, as he was writing this, it didn't, he didn't include this part in, in the lyrics of the song, but he reflected on this. There is no grief, like that, a grief that does not speak, right? He, he had to express his grief. And it came out in that song. It came out in many other songs and poems that he had written. But there is no grief that does not speak. Grief that we don't air will poison our souls. It will twist us into monsters. And the pain we carry will be far worse than the pain that experienced that we experienced during the initial grief that started it, that caused it. Friends, the grief that we don't process or vent becomes a powder keg with a lit fuse. Eventually it's going to blow, but you never really know when or where, and therefore you never really know who's going to be impacted by the shrapnel. But trust me, if you don't process your grief, if you don't process the sorrow that you feel with the losses that you've experienced, that day when you're in the grocery store 
or you're at work, or you're at Christmas dinner, and that bottled-up grief explodes, there's going to be a lot of hurt and a lot of damage control. Not just for you, but on the people that you care about. So today I want to look at something a man named Simeon said to Mary, the mother of Jesus, just after she'd given birth to Jesus. And this is a starting point for helping us process grief. Simeon, he's holding the infant child Jesus in his arms, and he declares that this is the long-awaited Messiah, this is the consolation of Israel, this is the one that we had all been hoping for. He would bring the glory back to Israel, and he's handing Jesus back to Mary. And he looks Mary in the eyes, and he says this, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And here's the part that we're going to wrestle with for a minute. And the sword will pierce your own soul too. The word soul here is the word, the Greek word psyche. We get our word psychology from it, but it really denotes not just the brain or the mind, it denotes the whole person. It literally means breath. It means life, the life force, the total person, the heart, the mind, the strength. Your whole self, here's what Simeon is saying, your whole self is going to be wrecked by being Jesus' mother. Your whole life, your whole self, your heart, your mind, your soul is going to be wrecked by the fact that you are Jesus' mother. You will experience constant sorrow. Interesting thing to say, isn't it? As a man, I'm never going to understand the intimate connection that a, that, a, that a mother has with her child. Because you literally grow this child in your womb, and it is an intimate connection that I don't think men are ever going to understand. My mom used to talk about how there's a sixth sense between her and her children. Does any mom feel like they have a sixth sense? You can almost feel when your children are in pain. You can almost feel if your children are in danger. It was uncanny. My mom used to, used to have this incredible, incredible sense where she could, she could tell if we were in danger or if we were in pain or if there was something wrong with us. She'd call me up. I was in college. She'd call me up and say, Ross, I just felt like I needed to call you. And I was like, yeah, I had a really, really horrible day. And it was like, weird, right? But you mothers know what we're talking about. And so there's this intimate connection between a mother and her son that I'm never going to fully understand. And so I would imagine that that was probably true of, of Mary carrying Jesus as well. Mary carried the incarnate God in her womb. The manifestation of pure love grew inside her, and yet when Jesus was in the world, here's what we're told about the description of Jesus. I think it's the most uh, interesting description of Jesus in the world. It comes out of Isaiah describing what the Messiah was going to be like and how the world was going to interact with the, the, the Messiah. The world was going to interact with the Messiah. We're told this. He, Jesus, had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. We held him in low esteem. Jesus was an outcast. The world didn't accept him. I'm guessing he didn't have a lot of friends. He was different. He didn't fit in. He was rejected and despised. The world, by and large, didn't want him. His own brothers and sisters, were told, didn't understand him. Now, Jesus was secure in God's love, right? So he was okay with all this. He was fine. But I can imagine how heartbroken Mary was watching this child whom she loved deeply and had this intimate connection with, despised and rejected, always, always, always lonely, never invited. Her soul was pierced, we're told. Her whole life was characterized by micro wounds of Jesus' rejection. And these micro losses, these, these micro lo- traumas can add up. So for a lot of us, it's, it's not like the large-scale, 
man, you know, my spouse died or my mother died or I lost a child, though that can be heartbreaking. For a lot of us, it's the micro losses. It's the, it's the micro traumas that we experience all the time. Significant loss that breaks our heart. It's a little, a lot of little disappointments, a lot of little losses, daily letdowns that sink us low. I don't keep a, a journal, I don't keep a diary, except when I'm on prayer retreats. I tend to, to write my prayers down and my thoughts on these retreats. And so I dug up a, a journal that I had um, taken with me on a retreat during COVID in December. And here's what I wrote during COVID. I'm mourning the loss of what was. The loss of where we thought we were going. Mourning the loss of loved ones. The loss of several family members. I'm mourning my mom's deteriorating health. The loss of jobs. The loss of dreams. The loss of community and connection and normalcy. Every day we have to guide our kids. Learning reminds me of what we lost. Every week I have to record messages. Reminds me of what we lost. Watching the world go crazy. Stockpiling goods and the economic turmoil makes me feel like we're losing our sanity. Our humanity as a people. I'm mourning the state of the world, and perhaps most deeply, I'm mourning people's apathy to turn to Jesus amidst it all. Micro-losses. I didn't feel like I had lost anything incredibly significant during COVID, but there were a ton of micro-losses that I was wrestling with and mourning over. For many over the past years, there have been significant losses of loved ones or of jobs or of dreams. But the world was swimming in grief. Maybe you can experience that or remember those days. We all lost a lot of things and the grief and anxiety was bleeding out. For so many marriages and families and work relationships, the powder keg of micro losses caused by the pandemic exploded. You know, after, you know, after the pandemic, there were more divorces, domestic disputes, gun violence, anger, depression, isolation, all increased significantly at the height of the pandemic, after the height of the pandemic. We were just grieving as a world and mourning as a world and we didn't even know, we didn't even know what was happening, but it was a powder keg that was stuffed with these micro losses and they just exploded in marriages and exploded in households and exploded in jobs and exploded in people's hearts and minds and souls. Most people didn't even recognize what was going on and therefore they could not even label what was going on. My friends, when you're in grief and in sorrow, if you can label it, then you can begin to manage it. If you can name it, then you can realize perhaps where you are in the stages of grief, and there are a lot of them. Shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing, acceptance, and reconstruction are all common phases of, of grief. And these aren't linear, by the way. Um, you may not even experience all of these if you're in a stage of grief. Um, you're not going to go through these step by step. You might go back and forth. You may circle through many of them. You may stay in some of these for years before moving on to the next stage. And whether it's a long string of micro-losses or a major significant loss, friends, the only cure for grief, the only cure for sorrow, the only cure for your pain is grieving. And that doesn't sound all that profound when you read it on a screen, but I want you to think about this for just a minute, friends. The only cure for grief is grieving. And I get that depression for many is a medical condition, but for many, depression is just a place we choose to camp out in because we've lost something and we don't even know it. We're mourning and we don't even know it. But naming what you lost, processing what you lost, and grieving what you lost allows you to move forward rather than camp out in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your pain. It allows you to manage it and to see it and to accept it and to realize that this pain 
though it will be carried with you, will not last to the intensity that does forever. I have to share with you this analogy again. Many of you have heard this analogy or seen it because I talk about this every time I talk to grief. I share this analogy every time I I present at a funeral or I'm, I'm offered to give a funeral because I think it's I think it's important and it speaks to the nature of grief and how the grief process works in so many of us. I use this analogy of a box with a ball inside of it. And there's a grief button on the wall. And I think what's important to know is that the grief button is always there in all of us. Right? We, we all carry around grief always. We'll talk about more of that on Thursday night a little bit, how grief is just a part of being human. There's a grief button on the, all of our walls, inside of all of our hearts. And during those times of really deep mourning, when there is a significant loss, maybe you lost your marriage, maybe you lost a loved one, maybe you lost your spouse or a child or your job or a dream, right? there's a significant loss. You've had to endure something really, really hard. Someone was exceptionally brutal to you. You had to experience something really hard. There's a lot of sorrow on your heart. And those moments, in those moments, and I remember feeling this because before I lost my mom, grief was a theory for me. I theorized about grief. I theologized about grief. I talked about grief a lot to a lot of people who were mourning, but I never really experienced intense grief. But when I lost my mom, I began to experience what I'm about to show you, that this ball ballooned up inside of this box to fill up the whole box. And that grief button was just pounded constantly. And maybe some of you have felt this way in the midst of deep, deep sorrow. You feel like, I'm never going to get out of this grief. This is a value that I am never crawling out of. The grief is too painful. It's too hard. It takes up the entire box, and that grief button is just constantly being hit. And this is when those visceral, honest, raw emotions from the heart are loudest and most overwhelming, and we just cry out so often, whether it be in solitude or to God. We cry out in these moments because it just feels like it's overwhelming and it's never going to go away. And so friends, if you're in a moment like this, I would caution you to make any significant decisions in your life for 30 days. Give this time before you make any radical decisions because this ball is overwhelming your life and it is usurping rational thinking. This is why grief in the midst of tragedy is so hard and why it feels impossible to do anything because everything, every action, every memory, every thought amplifies your pain. But here's what I came to experience with the loss of my mom, and maybe some of you have begun to experience it as well. The ball eventually begins to shrink. And life, you know, eventually feels more manageable, though it will never be completely gone. The ball is going to shrink and shrink and shrink. The reason that the ball is never going to be fully gone is because you've changed as a person. And grief is really... Oftentimes, if it's considered lost, love persevering for the one that we've lost. Not everything is a remembrance, and not everything is a painful experience. But here's what happens. The ball begins to bounce around that box. And it's not always this slow bouncing. Sometimes it's faster. The ball can bounce faster sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes the ball just begins to bounce around the box. And we don't, we don't always know when it's going to hit that grief button again. Seemingly random times, there is a wave of grief that comes over you. Waves of grief and pain creep up and overwhelm me because why? That grief button was hit again. Several years ago, before Alzheimer's completely destroyed my mother's mind and body, she really desired to go to Longwood Gardens. She lives out in Minnesota, but she read about Longwood Gardens in a magazine. She saw the Christmas tree display, and she said, 
when we're out there, we're coming at Christmas, I want to see Longwood Gardens. And so we went. We took her in 2019 to see Longwood Gardens. And and this is one of the last times I remember my mom being somewhat who she was before Alzheimer's completely took her. And we, we knew even then, we reflect on this, we knew even then that there was something my mom wasn't, wasn't herself. And so this morning I was on, on Facebook and there was an advertisement for Longwood Gardens. I just started thinking about my mom. Because the grief button was hit again. It's weird how it happens, right? Like, And there are times then the grief button begins to grow again. The, the ball inside the box begins to grow again as well. Around the holidays, maybe Christmas time, anniversaries, birthdays. Tuesdays, a friend of mine posted on Facebook recently about how she hates Tuesdays. That She hates the 22nd of every month and she also hates Thanksgiving because... She lost her child six years ago on Tuesday, the 22nd of November, the week of Thanksgiving. And so every Tuesday, that ball grows a little bit, and the button is hit, and every Thanksgiving it takes over the room. And eventually it shrinks back down again, but there are times when the, when the pain feels overwhelming for those we've lost. Mary was going to experience micro-tragedies her whole life because Jesus was going to be rejected his whole life. The manifestation of love and kindness was going to be rejected. The one who grew inside her womb was going to be rejected. But she would also watch Jesus, the manifestation of, of love, die in such a horrible, horrible way at the hands of such horrible, horrible evil. She experienced that earth-shattering, heart-ripping out, being beaten on the floor tragedy. It wasn't just a series of micro-losses. She experienced an incredible, incredible loss with the death of Jesus. And we're not told of her reaction in scripture, but I can imagine what watching Jesus beaten and tortured and mocked and ridiculed and crucified as a common criminal did to her. It's here in this expression of grief that we see how and why God came near. I want you to realize this, that when you mourn, you are in agreement with God that the world is broken. When you mourn, you are in agreement with God that the world is broken. And this, my friends, is a universal apologetic. When everyone talks about how, like, eh, God doesn't exist, I'm like, well, you know what? When you grieve the world, you are in agreement that something is not right with the world. When you grieve something, pain, sorrow, a loss, right, you are agreeing with God that the world is broken. Grief is an expression, it's a shout, it's a cry from our heart that what we are experiencing this moment is not right and we have a choice then as to how we respond to what we're experiencing in the moment. I remember on September 11th, um, 2001, the day that the world still grieves over and is still enraged by, that President George Bush told the world to, you remember, go shopping. That, that was his response. He said, go to Disney World and go shopping. Certainly he wanted to bolster the, the reeling economy, right? But it was also... You need to cope with what just happened. That was his attempt at coping, at helping the world cope with what just happened. Because coping is natural in the face of pain. 
Many, many turn to drinking or drugs or working more or binge watching or eating or shopping in hope to numb the pain that they're feeling. You know, the, the, the most people, the reason that their, their life comes out sideways, the pain, the anger, the turmoil that they create in your household or in your marriage or in your community, man, this is just their response to unresolved grief in their life. That there is something messing with their heart, there is grief, there is mourning that they carry, and they have not coped with it well, and so they are letting it come out. They're coming out with drinking, and they come home drunk, and then they start abusing people, slandering people. They cope with it through all sorts of things, going to Disney World, going shopping. They're coping through how they are experiencing the broken world that they're wading through. But when we cope in these ways... We're just pretending that the pain isn't actually there. We're trying to cover up the pain. Coping in these ways, it walls ourselves off from the pain and it turns our backs to evade the hurt that we're experiencing. And this, my friends, is like chasing the sun down. Always running towards the sun, clinging to remnants of light that are destined to die over the horizon. The sun will always outpace us, and eventually it will leave us feeling hopeless and wandering and wondering as the darkness overwhelms us. So when we cope with the morning of the world by drinking or by Disney World or by shopping, we're trying to chase remnants of what was. But friends, you know this. Eventually, the sun is always going to set. You cannot outpace the setting sun. But there is another way. And it's the way of God through Jesus. This is what God modeled for us in Jesus. God, we remember, mourns over the world too. At the graveside of his friend Lazarus, we are told that Jesus wept. As Jesus is walking into, riding into Jerusalem, um, as he's about to be put to death, he cries, he weeps over Jerusalem. He is mourning over the broken world as well. My friends, when you turn into the darkness, like Jesus did for us, he turned towards the pain of the world. He did not run away from the pain of the world. Jesus enters into the pain of the world. He steps into the pain. When you turn into the darkness, eventually in time, you will feel the warmth of the new day dawning. Instead of chasing the dusk, an effort that will always eventually turn to despair and darkness, God and Jesus turned to face the darkness. He waded into the pain. He embraced the pain. He carried the pain. He called the pain what it was. And the darkness can be scary, can't it? And that's why so often we choose not to embrace it because it's so scary. It's so, the sorrow is so deep in the darkness. It feels so heavy in the darkness. The yelling, the crying, the doubts, the fears come out in the darkness. And those are all welcomed and important, but we need to remember that the light never lasts forever. You can either evade the loss and live in perpetual wandering in the dark, trying to faulty solutions as you frantically chase the sunset, or you can embrace the loss and eventually find healing with a new day. Evading the loss won't change your reality. Trying to run away, trying to cope through the loss will not change your reality and will typically leave you wallowing in your own self-pity. But embracing the loss, wading into the darkness that does last for a time, yes, it will allow you to move forward into a new reality. 
There's an image that showed up several times in my social feeds this week. I meant to put it up here. Have you guys seen this? Maybe it was just me. Maybe God said, you need to use this as an illustration. It was of a bison covered in snow. Anybody else see this? So a couple of us. A bison was covered in snow, and the caption read this. Bison are the only animal that turn into a snowstorm rather than away from it, because they intrinsically know that walking into the storm will get them out of the weather quicker. The reason God draws near to the brokenhearted is because he is at work in the pain, friends. God is at work in the pain. To turn your back on your pain is also then to turn your back on the healer. Turn towards your pain, name it, be honest about it, process it in community, and sometimes with a licensed therapist, that tends to help too. Allow it to breathe, and allow the healer then to embrace you. I'm going to invite Sherry and Emily forward, and they're going to sing a song as to give a space to allow, to reflect on what we just heard. A week ago, um, Emily and I were, as I mentioned, in Poland. We, we flew out of Munich, Germany, and so we took the opportunity to to tour Dachau in Germany. Dachau was a concentration camp during the Second World War. It's a stark reminder of how horrible people can be. And friends, I kid you not, the stench of death still hovers over that land. Several things prompted our rage and our grief. Certainly the way people were treated caused outrage in us, but also the soldiers. We grieved for the soldiers. The fact that people could commit such horrible atrocities on another made us grieve too. And then we also grieved the townspeople. In our conversation just afterward, we were just reflecting on how could the townspeople not know what was going on. We read, we read, we read and we heard testimonies of how of townsfolk who would dress up in their Sunday best and go to church on Sunday mornings could smell the stench of death and they did nothing about it. They knew what was going on and they just turned a blind eye to it. So we grieved and we mourned all the people on the other side of the fence as well. Every time I experience like this, I turn on the news and we experience it, right? What's going on in Gaza right now or the Ukraine? I remember as I grieve and I mourn, I am remembering and I am agreeing with God that the world is broken. And I mourn the condition of humanity, but it also reminds me that though these are extreme behaviors, they began as a singular selfish thought that grew unrestrained into a monstrous action. So much of this world requires our mourning, friends. Yes, when our heart is broken, when we experience significant loss, the micro losses they pile up or something significant happens in our loss that causes us to grieve. But I also need to mourn the condition of myself, just the condition of myself, the condition of humanity as a whole, and my own heart as a participant in the brokenness in the world. Jesus said this, he said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who recognize and agree that the world is in fact broken and who feel the weight of a broken world as they walk through this world. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, we're told, or as the Ross Manders translation puts it, for only they can see why Jesus matters. Mary was told from Gabriel to name the baby boy Jesus because he would take away the sin of the world. Jesus came in to take away the sin of the world. She had no idea what would entail on the other side of his birth. But he was the solution to the world's mourning. And so therefore you should call him Jesus. And she accepted it and all that would come with it. Scripture tells us in Paul's letter to the Romans that while the world was still broken, 
while humanity was a mess, while the world was mourning over the condition that they found themselves in, God proved that he loved us through Christ's death on our behalf. And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because what the law was powerless to do, God did by nailing sin and the brokenness of the world to the cross in the flesh of Jesus. And in exchange, he has granted us by grace the gift of his Holy Spirit in order that we would be healed and overflowing with love. Friends, humans have a proclivity thank you, to hurting one another. The world is sinful. Death has ultimately been defeated, but creation isn't made new quite yet, friends. We are still going to mourn on this side of eternity. But the solution, my friends, is Jesus. And so if you are in mourning right now, if you are in a point of grieving, I want you to understand that the first step of any true healing journey is always towards Jesus. A second step may be into community or a grief share group or a licensed therapist who can help you deal with it. But make sure that your first step is always towards Jesus. He is the healer. I would encourage you to join us again on Thursday night. We're going to continue to reflect on this. This is kind of part one of what we're going to deal with again on Thursday to give you space and room to grieve. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we ask for your peace, your shalom, to overshadow all of the sorrows that we may feel. Knowing that on this side of eternity, while the world is still broken, Father, we're always going to carry grief with us. And we long for that day when peace, Father, is realized fully. Thank you for securing that day on our behalf. Thank you for coming near those who are brokenhearted. May we mourn with those who mourn so that we can carry each other's burdens together. So that nobody has to grieve alone. Thank you for your peace. In the name of your son, Jesus.